Hey super friends, my name is Neil and welcome to episode 56 of the Get Your Comic Con podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio direct to your speakers. I am of course joined by my very own boy Wanda Martin. Say hello Martin. Hello Martin. How are you today? I'm okay, how are you today? I'm very good. Why do you roll your eyes every time? Because I'll just say I'm okay. Okay. What have you been up to since we last podcasted? Not very much. No? No. Why not? Just been working. What have you been up to? Press screenings are back on the market, so I've been to see A Quiet Place 2, The Conjuring 3. You came with me to see Mugen Train, Demon Slayer. Oh, yeah. I Mister, I've not been up to anything for the last two weeks. Life is returning to somewhat normal with the cinema now being open. We've even been to the cinema to watch something. Did we go see it at the cinema? Um, Mortal Kombat. Mortal, Mortal Kombat! Yes, we did. What is coming up on this week's show? Boy Wonder. I, I don't know. Why don't you know? Because I don't know where the board is. Oh, because you said that the board had to come down because you don't like it. It's gone now. Well, it's not. It's just resting against the bookcase where I can now see it. We've got a quick news roundup of what's been going on for the last couple of weeks, and then we've got some reviews we're going to talk about at Demon Slayer Mugen Train. I'm going to talk quickly about Conjuring 3. We're going to touch on Cruella. And just literally a couple of hours ago, as we were about to sit down and record this podcast, we got quite an interesting email from Disney, didn't we? We did. We've just received the first two episodes of Loki, which premieres on Wednesday, June the 9th. Episode 1 will air this week, episode 2 will air next week. Uh, so we're gonna, we've had to sit down and watch those first before we podcast, so we're going to chat a bit about Loki as well. So without further ado, let's dive into the headlines. Netflix has announced casting for its long-awaited adaption of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, this is not to be confused with the recent audiobook that's also been released. Uh, this is a brand new live action adaption which Neil Gaiman is helping mastermind along with the crew at Warner Brothers TV, DC, and Netflix. So, the f- series is going to star Kirby Howell Baptiste as Death, Mason Alexander Park as Desire, Donna Preston as Despair, Rasmund Jamal as Lita Hall, Jolie Richardson as Ethel Cripps. Neve Walsh as Young Ethel Cripps, David Thewlis as John D, Kyo Ra as Rose Walker, Patton Oswalt as the voice of Matthew the Raven, Stephen Fry as Gilbert, Jenna Coleman as Joanna Constantine, and Sandra James Young as Unity Kincaid. An interesting mix of casting, Notably, uh, social media lit up pretty quickly at the idea of Joanna Constantine rather than John Constantine with Jenna Coleman. And it was also picked up on the fact that this uh, promotional artwork that was released for the cast, which you can check out over on our website, also notes every single actor, character's uh, pronouns, uh, of which you've obviously got people like Mason Alexander Park as they, them, playing Desire. Which is quite interesting. It certainly caused some conversation on social media. Like I said, a lot of it focusing on some of the gender swaps that are going on here, particularly Joanna Constantine. What are your thoughts on this casting announcement? 
I say this knowing full well that Jenna Coleman is your least favourite Doctor Who companion of all Doctor Who companions. Oh, it's her. <laughs> right. Well, you said the name. I don't know the names, do I? Yes, Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who, playing oh. Joanna Constantine. I wasn't a massive fan of her in Doctor Who. No, you hated her. Yeah. Not her as a person, just the character. I just didn't like the character. What was her character again? Clara. Clara, that's the badger. No, I wasn't a fan of Clara. I don't know why, I just didn't like her. Okay, how do you feel about her potentially being Joanna Constantine? Well, not potentially, she is Joanna Constantine. She is, yeah. I don't know, I mean... I'm not against it. It's a different take on a very classic character. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. So Joanna Constantine is a character from Sandman, rather than just a straight-up gender flip of Constantine. There is some school of thought out there that perhaps Constantine isn't fully available as John Constantine, because obviously he's in Legends of Tomorrow, and there are still rumblings of obviously Justice League Dark being a series coming to Netflix, uh, not Netflix, HBO Max, and there is still rumours of... Um, I was going to say Nicolas Cage, um, Keanu Reeves getting a either a sequel or a, a, like a limited series based on his version of Constantine as well. So Joanna Constantine was the daughter of Lord and Lady Constantine, orphaned at a young age when her parents were hanged for treason. Stripped of her title, she was forced to live in poverty. Her luck turned in 1785 when King George III asked her to retrieve Pandora's box. If she succeeded, her title would be reinstated and she would gain an estate. With success, her noble title was reinstated and she inherited Blackwood Manor, which she renamed Thorny Rig. So she was created by Neil Gaiman, first appeared in Sandman issue 13, The Doll's House Part 4, Men of Good Fortune. In the audiobook, she was played by Joanna Lumley. So there is, I mean, there is a precedent for John Joanna Constantine, but I think people are a little bit unsure as to whether... This version of Joanna Constantine, it being a contemporary version of Sandman, will be something akin to John Constantine, or Joanna Constantine, the character. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I've only read the first one of Sandman. Well, you've read Sandman that includes John Constantine as well. Yeah. So there is a precedent for our version of Constantine to appear in it. Because he does play a big part in the first Sandman. I don't know what this series is based on. Is it based on the first part? I don't know all about it. Uh, I... Um, ashamedly have to admit that I've never read Sandman. I tried to listen to the audiobook but turned out that audiobooks are not a good thing for me to listen to at night because I fall asleep straight away and actually miss them. I liked volume one. I thought it was really good about death. Mm. Not death. The Sandman. Yeah. was in there and the devil and all those bits. I really enjoyed it. And I would go back and read volume two. Well, there we go. Maybe that's something that you're going to have to do well ahead of this. The series is in production now. We don't have a timescale as to when it's set to debut on Netflix, but it's expected later in 2021 or early in 2022. Sticking with Netflix, the streamer has also quietly-ish confirmed that it's not moving ahead with a second season for Mark Miller's Jupiter's Legacy. The series debuted its first and now only season uh, last month, so May 2021. It starred Josh Duhamel, Leslie Bibb and... Matt Lanter. After a lukewarm reception from critics, the series seems to have struggled slightly and it looks like Netflix is moving in a different direction. So in a post to social media, Mark Miller, uh, creator of the series and of the comic book origins and kind of lead on the Miller World 
adaption to live action through Netflix has confirmed that instead of a season two, they're going to be moving ahead with a Super Crooks live action series, which is set in the same world. So it could feature characters from Jupiter's Legacy, but instead is a uh, kind of heist story focused on a group of supervillains. We've watched this series, not Super Crooks, obviously, Jupiter's Legacy. We had uh, we had review copies of this from Netflix, and we did talk about this on a previous podcast, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but how do you feel about the fact that it's not moving ahead with another season? I mean, I can completely see why. <laughs> that's that's quite a common sort of opinion that's going around social media, really. It was okay. I wouldn't rush to watch it again. Yeah, as we said when we talked about it on here, I think it pulled together a bit towards the end. So I do think it's a shame it's not getting a second season because it showed there was potential there, particularly in its last couple of episodes. But I just think it took too long to find its footing and probably didn't help that it lost one showrunner halfway through and then had to have somebody else come in and finish it. So I feel like the odds were slightly stacked against it. Uh, But the cast, I thought, were great and there were a lot of good elements in there. So I hope that some of them get to carry out a little bit more of their characters in in other means through this Miller World universe. Geezies. Yeah. Crazy. And now Josh Duhamel posted to social media a picture of himself saying he was now freely available for work because he was saddened to hear that it wouldn't be going ahead with another season. Did you watch Jupiter's Legacy? What did you think? Let us know on social media. You can always find me at Neil Vag on Twitter and Instagram. Martin is at BoyWonder1989. And you can find us at Get Your Comic Con on all major platforms as well. Let us know what you thought. Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? How do you feel about the fact that it's been cancelled? We'd love to hear from you on that one. Marvel Studios has released the first full trailer for Eternals, which debuts in cinemas in November 2021. The film has a massive cast, including Angelina Jolie as Thena, Gemma Chan as Cersei, Richard Madden as Icarus, Barry Curran as Druig, Lisa McHugh as Sprite, Kit Harrington as Dane Whitman, Salma Hayek as Ajak, Kumail Nanjiani as Kingo, Ma Dong Siok as Gilgamesh, Brian Tyree Henry as Fastos, Lauren Ridloff as Makari. And the next person on IMDb is Brenda Lorena Garcia as Babylon Villager. So I think I'll stop there. The film is directed by Chloe Zhao. And as I said, it's due to hit cinemas on 5th of November 2021. We got a very brief look at this in Marvel's Phase 4 trailer that came out a couple of months ago, but there wasn't a huge amount of footage to see there. This is our first kind of really big look at the film, which... I can't remember if this was one of the... I think this was one of the ones that was due earlier this year, not due last year and delayed, um, and has found itself to move back a little bit. But finally getting ready to hit cinemas and Marvel finally getting ready to to show us some of this film and prepare us for it. What did you think of this trailer, Boy Wonder? It's not just occurred to me. It's a film. I thought it was a TV series. Oh, really? Yeah. Why did you think it was a TV series? I don't know. I just had in my head it was a TV series. No, no. Movie. Oh. Oh. So you've got Black Widow in July... Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings in September and then Eternals in November. You've got three Marvel movies to come through the rest of this year. Four, because you've got Spider-Man in December. It looked okay. I don't really know. I don't know. We've talked about this before, I think, when the Phase 4 trailer came out. Neither neither of us have read anything with any of these characters in, so it's all quite new territory. I feel like the trailer doesn't look overly Marvel. I think it looks different. The only thing is that kind of stinger shot at the very end after the logo where it goes back and it's like oh i could lead the avengers ha 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 that feels like a little of marvel's usual we're going to show you something that's going to be quite serious and quite measured and then we're going to chuck in a joke at the end got a cat trying to roll onto the keyboard just gently sliding him out of the way do you know what i mean it's not got that typical marvel origin feel to it no 
I agree. What do you like about the trailer? Um, I don't. Um, I don't really have any feelings towards it, to be honest with you. Okay. It looks alright. I'm not really excited for it. Why would you? Because you don't know them, or because you, there's nothing about the trailer that kind of excites you for it? It just feels like we've we're sort of getting towards the end of what's mineable. <laughs> like we're we're kind of scraping the barrel for what can we do next? Yeah, not scraping the barrel, but there's like it almost feels like they're slightly not running out of ideas, but they've you know they've spent a long time on the core phases mm-hmm. of the big hitters. Yeah, and now we're going a bit sort of out the box, and I'm less interested. Okay, so sort of just trying to see what might work next and how they can keep it going. Yeah. So do you feel similar about Shang Chi? Well, I really liked the trailer for Shang-Chi. Okay. That had a, that really grabbed me. Okay, so there we go. So now we're hitting on something. So this one just doesn't grab you as much. No. Okay. I, I probably would agree with you in that I don't feel as grabbed by it, which I would attribute to my own lack of knowledge about the characters. So I'm, I'm on the fence in terms of I'm intrigued to see what their place is in the Marvel Universe and how that might fit in later on. I don't see quite how they fit into the bigger picture yet. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, because if they're these old powerful godlike beings and where have they been during Thanos and all that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Especially if they've been on Earth for all this time. I see what exactly. I mean, why did they? It's another. Why did they sit back? Yeah, it's and like Captain Marvel. Where? Why does she sit back until the last possible moment? <laughs> yeah. As I said, Eternals hits cinemas on fifth of November, twenty twenty one. There'll be plenty more to talk about that film in the coming weeks. Last news story for this week is uh, is a. Exciting piece of news in the world of DC, which is confirmation that shooting has now begun on Shazam! Fury of the Gods, the Shazam sequel. Due in cinemas on June the 2nd, 2023. That's a way away at this point in time, if that is still the correct release date. The film will once again star Zachary Levi as Shazam. It's got a really random way of listing the cast on IMDb. So top casting apparently is Adam Brody as superhero Freddy. You've got Lucy Liu as Calypso, Helen Mirren as Hespera, Jack Dylan Grazer as Freddy, Marta Milans as Rosa, Asher Angel as Billy Batson, Rachel Ziegler, who's just been announced to join the cast, and Faith Herman as Darla Dudley. That's weird. They've not put all the cast on there. I mean, most of the cast from Shazam are expected to return, uh, but that obviously are not all fully confirmed as yet. David F. Sandberg returns to direct the film. So we have seen our first set photos of Zachary Levi in costume as Shazam, which showed a slightly updated design, which then led to David Sandberg releasing a hilarious mini-trailer of the costume in darkness. What do you think of the slightly updated costume? It's all right. Um, the the Shazam, or the, the lightning's a bit smaller, isn't it? It does look like they've made the lightning bolt slightly smaller, I wonder if they've updated... I mean, they generally do update the costumes, even just small tweaks between films, but I wonder if this has been updated to put it in line with what The Rock's going to look like as Black Adam. I wonder if they're putting them kind of similar kind of costumes. That makes more sense. There's some more detailing across the costume, particularly across the shoulders and then in the gauntlets as well, so I presume also the boots. And he's got new panels we're, sorry we're looking at a picture if it sounds like we're describing something he's got new panels kind of down the sides of it which are in a slightly darker shade of red as well one thing that i noticed straight away it looks less padded i don't know if he's bigger or if they've refined the padding but it looks like it fits his shape a lot better you know how people thought he looked quite cartoony in the first one and that mm. his upper body looked a bit overblown this looks a little bit more natural to me 
Yeah, no, it does actually. It did look very woo in the first one. Yeah, I feel like this is this is a more natural Shazam, so I quite like it. It's going to be interesting to see what it looks like in action. Looks like they're going for potentially a CGI cape situation, as he's not wearing one in any of the the set photos that we've seen. But he's got the the clips on the top of it for where it should be. I'm guessing they're going with a part CGI cape, which is fairly commonplace for the DC movies these days. That's a shame. I like a real cape. He, I'm sure he will. I mean, he had a real cape in the previous one, but I guess there are there are times where they feel it's less easy to shoot with a with a real cape, particularly when you're in the middle of an action scene, and they'll add it in later. I don't think I have anything about it that I'm not overly keen on. I do... The lightning bolt feels that does not quite sit right with me just yet. But then I know there was a lot of technology in the in the previous suit because it, it lit up itself. It was a practical light up one. So maybe they're doing something there to try and make it a little bit more functional as a as an overall costume. Maybe the the batteries and the lights that went with the lightning bolt and the first version were his equivalent of a Michael Keaton sort of immovable neck. Mm. It looks a bit more comic accurate because it was quite high up. Mm, it does, yeah. So it's going to be interesting. We know very little about the story of this film as yet. I mean, it's not due out for a long time, so this is just the beginning. I'm guessing they had that trailer, which you can check out over on our website, www.getyourcomicon.co.uk, preset, ready to go, because they knew that as soon as they were shooting, they were clearly going to be out and about and would get caught with set photos. DC seems really good at being prepared for when set photos come out, because obviously they have no control over when they leak, so... Seems like they were ready with the trailer. I can't believe that he's 40. Yeah, they've got to hurry up. I mean, 2023 is a long time. Those kids won't be kids for much longer. No, they won't. And if you... I showed you that Instagram story from Asher Angel, who plays Billy Batson the other day. The guy's almost as stacked as Zachary Levi is at this point in time. What? Stacked. Is that not the lingo that the kids use these days? Oh, you're asking the wrong kid here. (laughs) I'm an old man. We've got a long road ahead for Shazam! Fury of the Gods, but as I said, the film is due in cinemas on June 2nd, 2023. Time for the first of our reviews this week. We're going to whip through a couple of movies before we get to uh, Loki, which has completely sideswiped us today. So first up is The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Directed by Michael Chaves, the film once again stars Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson as Ed and Lorraine Warren. Co-starring are Rory O'Connor, Sarah Catherine Hook, John Noble and Eugenia Boudrant. The film is in UK cinemas now from Warner Brothers. The synopsis for this film reads, One of the most sensational cases from Ed and Lorraine Warren's files. It starts with a fight for the soul of a young boy, then takes them beyond anything they'd ever seen before to mark the first time in US history that a murder suspect would claim demonic possession as a defence. Eighth film in the franchise, I might point out that this is, following the two other conjurings, three Annabelles, a nun, and the case of La Llorona, which I've not seen. Reminds me of another film where it goes to a very big court case where they question the existence of God. Which is? Remember Colin 34th Street? (laughs) True. So there's an interesting... (laughs) There is an interesting existential question in that. I mean, when you think about it, it is actually perfectly... I don't want to use the word legitimate, but that's the word that sprang to mind. I mean, when you go to court, 
I don't know. I haven't been to court in the UK. I haven't been to court in America. But, you know, you see a lot of court. You in, were a juror. Did you I was a to... juror. I don't remember anyone being having to swear to God to tell the whole truth, know everything but the truth. But you do. So help me God. That's the, that's the thing. You, you swear to God that you will tell the truth in court. So if every time a court case swears someone in, they do that on the basis of the fact that the courts believe in God, then does the court not believe in the devil? Which is a really interesting question. And I kind of wish this film had explored that a little bit more. It kind of moves beyond it to tell more of a sensationalist story about a satanic cult. But there's an, there is an interesting existential question there in believing in, in the devil when it comes to also believing in God in that situation. Uh, there's a really funny bit in the film where um, Arnie, who's the, the murderer, his lawyer, is talking to the Warrens and says there is literally no way anyone is, with a straight face, going to sit in court and say, I plead not guilty on the basis of demonic possession. And she just says, who would believe in that? And they say, come round for dinner and we'll we'll try and help explain it to you. And you don't see her go round for dinner. It just kind of smash cuts to her in court the next day. And she's just sitting, <laughs> she's sitting in the court shaking. And she's like, we say that he's not guilty based on demonic possession. And I kind of want to know if there's a deleted scene in there whereby they showed her some of the shit that they keep in their house. Because it would scare the living daylights out for you. Unfortunately, they've been proven to be pretty much charlatans in real life, which is quite sad. So I, I believe in the Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson version of the Warrens rather than the real-life version. So what were the real-life people? Are they real Satanists? They're not Satanists. They're, they're supernatural investigators oh, of sorts okay. who were aligned with the church. But a lot of what they talk about is that they say they have they have real proof that go well i say they have they're both passed away now i think uh, they had real proof that demons existed and ghosts existed but they didn't do any scientific research but a lot of the stuff that they dealt with is plausible to if you believe that kind of thing and a lot of the people that were involved with them firmly believe in what they did so this film is based on a real case like the other two films so arnie johnson is is a real guy. He um, his his now wife. He is still married to her. They are still together. Uh, his so his brother in law wasn't brother in law at the time, but would be now uh, was supposedly possessed. The church believed in the demonic possession of the young boy, and the Warrens were called in to oversee the exorcism. And there are real tapes of the exorcism, which they play you some of during the end credits. They always play you bits of evidence. I say in air quotes from the real story in the end credits of these films. So during the exorcism, it was all going horribly wrong and is one of the most dramatic things the Conjuring franchise has ever done. And it's the opening sequence of this film. It's amazing. Uh, Arnie basically grabs the kid and they have it on audio tape. So again, probably less dramatic in real life, but he basically shakes the kid that's possessed and, and wills the demon to possess him instead to save the kid. And... In the film, there's a kind of visual cue to Arnie then being possessed, but obviously I don't know what that would be like in, in air quotes, real life. And what happens then is a couple of weeks later, Arnie uh, kills his landlord. The way they set it up in the film is that the landlord's a bit of a drunken lout and is n not sexually assaulting, but is manhandling his girlfriend who he's living with and that he sees a demon doing it rather than it being the guy, and he stabbed him. I think in real life, the murder was only uh, a couple of quite nasty stab wounds to the, the neck and chest. In the film, it's 23 stab wounds. 
slightly dramatized um and then in court he he pleaded demonic possession and the warrens were part of that court case in trying to prove that he was demonically possessed i he that in so again in real life the jury threw that out there was some kind of technicality and it was thrown out and he was given 20 years but got out within five married the girl and they're still together and they believe that he was possessed and that the Warrens helped him to be exercised. And that's why they're still together. She believed he didn't commit murder. It was the demon that had inhabited him. In the film, uh, it turns out that there is a satanic cult who'd placed a totem underneath the house, which is why the little boy was possessed. It had called forth a demon, which then went into Arnie. During the little boy's exorcism, Ed has a heart attack so that he's kind of slightly taken off the board for the rest of the film. And it falls very much on Vera Farmiga as Lorraine to carry the story. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. So they get a totem sent to them because the satanic cult is then after Ed and Lorraine. And there's another girl whose story is factored into it who went missing in another part of the country who'd also had a totem sent to them, again, by the same cult. And it all ties back to John Noble's character and his daughter. Uh, it's it's an interesting story. There are some bits... <laughs> I was about to say there are some bits where you have to suspend your disbelief, but you probably have to suspend quite a lot of disbelief. Just... It never explains... I mean, it's consequential that the Warrens were at this exorcism. There was a kid, the family thought they were possessed, the Warrens were called in. That's fairly logical. There was a totem at his house. That The, the totem part, which I don't think is part of the real-life story, is very um, matter-of-fact. Like, why was there a totem sent to that family? Why did it go to the... Well, I guess it went to the Warrens because they were involved in the investigation. But it's never explained why it went to the other girl who had one either. It's very random and just happens. It's one of those things that's not very well explained and felt like it needed a little bit more context. Um, overall, though, flipping loved this film. I uh, had to hide behind my coat a couple of times because I knew that there were scares coming. It's not overly scary, um, but it, it when it's scary, it is quite scary. Amazing special effects. Loved it. Just loved the whole thing. And at the same time, they uh, they kind of... And this will probably disappoint some people because it's not very horror. But it wove in kind of some of the backstory on, on Ed and Lorraine and how they met and how they... Re- does a bit of a Flash thing. Love conquers all. Yeah. So at the end of the day, to defeat the Satanist cult, it's the relationship between Ed and Lorraine that is able to defeat the Satanist lady. Um, so there is a bit of a sort of mushy kind of love conquers all going on. Yeah. <laughs> But otherwise, a thoroughly enjoyable film. Which I said in my review... The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is the series' most captivatingly dark entry to date. Emotionally powerful and deeply disturbing. This one will stay with you long after you leave the cinema. You can read my full review over on the website. An other horror film that I saw in the last couple of weeks was A Quiet Place Part 2 from Paramount Pictures, which is in cinemas in the UK now. Written and directed by John Krasinski and once again starring Emily Blunt, Noah Jupe, Millicent Simmons, and also starring Killian Murphy and Digimon Hunsu. You don't really need the synopsis for this one, because it's basically a continuation of the first film. But following the deadly events at home, the Abbott family must now face the terrors of the outside world as they continue their fight for survival in silence. Forced to venture into the unknown, they quickly realise that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path. So if you've seen the first film, this is very much a continuation. It's not kind of, it, There are elements of bigger and better, but it's not reinventing the wheel of A Quiet Place. It's very much continuing what happened the first time round and just telling a wider story that weaves in some more of the outside world. It's 
absolutely brilliant. It has a huge opening sequence which flashes back to the moment that the creatures arrived on Earth, which is very loud, it's very bombastic, and completely in contrast with the rest of the film, which is obviously relatively quiet. It then tells you a really interesting story of how the Abbott family travels beyond the safety of their, their barn where they were in the first film, weaves in Killian Murphy's character, and you learn about what happened to, to everyone else that lived in the local area and how humanity is kind of coping in the wake of the events of A Quiet Place and this flashback. It's I was trying to say this to you yesterday, but I don't think that this film is particularly scary. And you said you'd feel menaced by it, and I said I didn't think you'd feel menaced by it either. It is... It's really hard to describe because it is kind of classed as a horror film, but I wouldn't almost call it that. I think it, I guess it is creepy and there are a couple of jumps in it, but I still don't, I don't know. It's not out and out horror to me. It's like a, it's like a sci-fi horror, which I feel gets a a slightly different set of criteria in that they're, they're less, well, I suppose if you look at Alien, that's out and out scary. I don't know. It's just, it's not, it's not scary. It's mildly jumpy. That makes sense? I think so. Like, I think that if we sat you down to watch this, I actually think you would enjoy it. Mm, you look sceptical. Yeah. Why? I don't know. There's been a lot of horror in the house, so I just don't trust <laughs> you. I, it's, I don't know. What this film does do is a really wonderful job of putting a uh, character with a perceived disadvantage in the forefront because uh, Reagan, who is the the daughter of the Abbott family and is basically the saviour of humanity, is deaf. Now, you would kind of think, with the setup, you would think that actually being deaf may be a disadvantage even in this situation, because whilst it means quiet, she doesn't realise what noise she is making and noise is what uh, brings the creature's attention. They can't, the, the, the creatures are blind, but they have hypersensitive hearing. So that's why everyone is silent, because if you make a noise, they basically swoop in and kill you. Uh, but it turns out, and it, this is not a spoiler, this is from the first film, that if you play feedback through her hearing aid, it basically makes their heads explode. It's a bit like Mars Attacks oh. in that respect. Uh, but in this film, she goes from kind of being the, the daughter who's protected by her parents to being what will ultimately be the saviour of humanity. Although, there is a really interesting plot point in this, which I won't spoil in case not many people have been able to go out and see it yet, um, <laughs> unlike The Conjuring, which I just talked about in great detail. But there is a, there's a plot point, I mean, there's, there's very much another cliffhanger ending to this, and I think there will be a part three, but there is a plot point which makes me wonder whether the entire world is in the same situation as America, where, where this family are, or whether it's uh, isolated to only the continents on which the alien creatures landed. Oh. That probably gives it away, but... You've just you... given it right away there. <laughs> well, well, no, because I haven't explained why, but you can probably piece it together from what I've just said. Admittedly, I haven't looked what the budget for this film is, but I would say that it's not a huge, like, big-budget blockbuster, but it does everything incredibly well within its financial constraints, I would say. Like, there's not a huge amount... There's not big action set pieces... They do CGI in, in small amounts and focus mainly on the, the alien creatures, so they're done really, really well. And it works in that respect. There's a great aesthetic to it, which continues from the first film. And you get the addition of Killian Murphy, who's great in this film. And he's generally great in everything, really. That's the guy that played Scarecrow in Batman Begins. Oh, yeah, he's good. The Peaky Blinders guy. I've not seen that. <laughs> he's really, really good in this, as he is in, in most things, and that'll be a highlight for a lot of people. He has a really great relationship with, uh, with Reagan, Millicent Simmons' character, which is great, because he doesn't speak sign language... Uh, so really the two have to find a way to communicate 
there is one uh, point in the film where they're both kind of in danger. They discover that a lot of the people who are still alive have kind of regressed into being like bad people, hillbilly bad people. Um, and the one piece of sign language that she taught him before the world fell apart happens to be the thing that saves both their lives in that moment, which is a little bit uh, convenient. Like, oh, in the flashback at the beginning, you taught him one word, and that one word happens to save you both right now. Uh, it's quite a specific word as well. My verdict on A Quiet Place Part 2 was that it is strikingly measured in its response to its predecessor's success, capitalising on all of its accomplishments to create an equally compelling, tense and captivating sequel. Now for a couple of films that we've both seen, so that I don't have to talk quite so much. Uh, let's race through the world of Disney's Cruella, starring Emma Stone available in cinemas and on Disney Plus Premier Access now. The film also stars Emma Thompson, Joel Fry, Paul Walter Hauser, Emily Beecham, Kirby Howell-Baptiste and Mark Strong. It's quite a long synopsis for this, but Cruella, which is set in 1970s London, admits the punk rock revolution, follows a young grifter named Estella, a clever and creative girl determined to make a name for herself with her designs. She befriends a pair of young thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they are able to build a life for themselves on the London streets. One day, Estella's flair for fashion catches the eye of the Baroness von Hellman, played by Emma Thompson, a fashion legend who is devastatingly chic and terrifyingly haught played by two-time Oscar winner Emma Thompson. Oh, sorry, her name's in the synopsis. But their relationship sets in motion a course of events and revelations that will cause Estella to embrace her wicked side and become the raucous, fashionable and revenge-bent Cruella. I really enjoyed this film. I have been a somewhat vocal critic of Disney's live-action films. I did enjoy Aladdin. There's no denying it. I thought that film was quite enjoyable. Though, having said that, I've never gone back and watched it again. I didn't really enjoy The Lion King. And I didn't really enjoy Beauty and the Beast. Um, But this film... I have very little I can critique on this film. Other than the fact that I thought it was a little bit overly long. What did you think of this film? It was okay. Yeah? Yeah. All right, you sound less convinced. What didn't you like about this film? Or what made you feel it was only okay, not great? It was a bit too long, I think. I did. There was a feeling for me about halfway through where I thought, ooh, okay, this is building to quite an interesting sort of climax. And I realised I was only halfway through and there was still quite a lot to go. So I, I do I do think, although it picks up again in the second half, that there was a, a bit of a lull in the middle. But I think the whole thing for me, uh, I mean, my verdict, if you want to read my review, which is up now on the website, was simply put, Emma Stone is transcendent as Cruella. The film is bold, visually seductive, and truly anarchic. I just felt like I wasn't even watching Emma Stone. I felt like she just became Cruella. She's a very talented actress, actor. There are a lot of comparisons between this and Joker, which I think is quite, it's a little, it's a little bit of a stretch, because, you know, she didn't, you know, kill a whole bunch of people in a TV studio. But I guess in terms of a performance, and I know he lost lots of weight and visually changed himself, whereas she just had different hair and different clothes. But I, I, there was a, an element of transformativeness, if that's not a word, to her performance, which I do think she disappears into Cruella in that respect. Hmm, interesting. There's a lot to take in. It's like a comic book brought to life in many ways. There's very strong set design, costume design, 
sound design. I mean, obviously, you don't get sound in a comic book. But you know what I mean? It's it's cartoony and comic booky in a way, but at the same time, a a very visually diverse live action piece. I need to go back and watch it again. Although I've watched it and reviewed it, I don't feel like I've had a chance to soak up everything, so I want to see it again so I can really round out my opinion on it. Digest the visual onslaught. Yes. I, I would imagine going back to it, there's a lot that you don't take in at first watch that you would take in at second watch. So I think we'll sit down and watch this again at some point soon. Probably on. I think it's worth seeing on a big screen. That's. I don't know if you agree with me, but with it being so visually striking, I think watching it on Disney Plus is maybe not the best way to see it firsthand. Probably the best way to see it is on a big screen. Yeah, probably. Then you get the, the ooh and the ah of the, the environment. Mm, definitely. Anything else you'd like to say about this one before we whiz into the next film? No, whiz away. Okie dokie. So Cruella is available in cinemas now and on Disney Plus Premiere Access. Did you enjoy Cruella? Let us know. Find us on social media, drop us your opinion and let us know what you thought of it. It'd be interesting to see what you think, especially compared to some of the other Disney live action films which have often been quite polarising for audiences. Last film for this week was a surprise watch for the two of us which is Demon Slayer the movie Mugen Train, available in cinemas now. Uh, I'm actually not going to read out the cast because I'm afraid that I will get everyone's name really wrong in horribly and offensive ways. Uh, We saw the uh, subtitled version rather than the dubbed version. They are both available in cinemas now. It's also available to watch in IMAX, so you can see it with with the wonderful English cast or you can see it with the original Japanese cast, uh, and it's it's quite a sight to behold. The synopsis for the film, I've never actually read. Let's have a see what it says. After his family was brutally murdered and his sister turned into a demon, Tanjiro Kamado's journey as a demon slayer began. Tanjiro and his comrades embark on a new mission aboard the Mugen train on track to despair. <laughs> All right. Now, I admittedly have to say I have not watched a huge amount of anime in my life before. I really enjoy Akira, which I think is a great film. I also really enjoy Ghost in the Shell, and which is like two animes that people will say, oh, you have to watch this if you like anime. Um, or like back in my uni days, everyone was like, if you've not watched it, you have to watch these two. I've also seen Perfect Blue, which is a great film. And uh, I was a big fan of the Animatrix, but I don't know if that really counts as an anime or if that's like Hollywood anime. But I really enjoyed this film. What did you think? Well, as a big anime fan, not from all my years of watching Pokemon, <laughs> um, I enjoyed it as well. Well, you've gone back and immediately started watching the series on Netflix. I have. Uh, so it's it's worth pointing out that if you uh, if you go watch this film cold, you will still understand it. But if you have uh, or want to watch the series first, so that you have some context to the characters, the full first season of uh, Demon Slayer is available to stream on Netflix again, either in uh, subbed or dubbed version. What did you like about this film, then? It was just a bit nuts. Um, I don't know. It was a bit of a weird onslaught to the system because I'm not really one for subtitles. No, I was a bit worried for your sanity when uh, it was subtitled. And it was after work as well, so I was really like, oh, I don't like I've got the energy for this. It was also... We, we had the great pleasure of being able to see it in IMAX, which... Um, was amazing for the visuals, uh, and thank you to to Funimation and uh, to all the studios involved for inviting us down to the to the premiere of it. But not only was it in IMAX, but 
subtitles were at the top and bottom of the screen if there was multiple sets of dialogue happening at the same time. So that meant that you were literally kind of yo-yoing from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen to try and read everything that was going on to keep up with the story. It was quite a literal translation as well. It was, and that's one of the issues that I think I have with anime, is that I would rather watch it subtitled so I can hear it as it's originally meant to be heard. But that can mean very literal translations of dialogue, which sometimes I think lose the meaning when it's not your first language. Hmm. For me, it was the visuals. Uh, Although I enjoyed the dialogue, I think there are probably times when I laughed at the wording because the wording to me didn't quite make the same sense that it would if I understood the the original language, uh, which is why I wonder if it would be a different experience to hear the subtitle, uh, the dubbed version. But the visuals were just stunning for me. The artwork was was amazing. I don't know if I'm going to presume that it's digital rather than hand drawn, but it just looked stunning, especially in such a large format screen. No, it was very impressive. Like I said, it was a massive onslaught to the old senses. Um... So visually, it was like, wow. And to my ears, it was a delight as well. Was it much of a step up visually from what you've seen in the series? Or is the series that spectacular? Well, the series is about the same, really. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, not obviously not an IMAX, because, you know, I'm watching yeah. at home. Yeah, obviously. It was quite a long film as well, was it not? It was nearly two hours long. Yeah, it was quite long. Which is probably one of my only real issues that I find with anime is that they can be quite protracted and very, very talky. But I didn't feel like this was. There was a lot of dialogue, but I felt there were some really great action beats all the way through, so it was paced quite well. Yeah, I've never been able to get into anime because of all the talkiness, but this has changed my mindset. The only time that I felt it went on a little bit too long with talking was the the big character death, which I won't spoil, towards the end of the film which was clearly very emotional because the girl that was sat behind me at our screening was crying her eyes out. Uh, But considering we'd had the... Can you remember what the line was? Like, I've been completely cut open in my femoral artery or something like that. It was very specific. Yeah, it was a very specific part of the body that he was like, oh no, my blur has been destroyed and is now missing. And basically half his torso was missing. Yet he continued to talk for a good five to ten minutes. He held on well. And that was a bit weird for me. Well, I mean, it was like a cartoon about demons. So. I know, it's just... I I don't know, it's, it's really difficult to say or put into words exactly what I mean. But when I'm already suspending a fair amount of disbelief, when there's action that can be quite cutthroat, it feels odd to me that then your pacing suddenly goes from really, really tight to really, really drawn out for someone who should, in theory, just keel over and and die straight away to then to be able to talk and be like the, please go visit my house, find my brother, tell him this, go here, do this, grow up, don't be sad, learn your skills. You're like, oh my God, um, die. (laughs) I don't mean that in a nasty way, it's just, I don't know, something about that is what, doesn't always work for me in anime. I just think that's just anime, really. Yeah. Even if you play a game of that nature, it's still you've got to have like 10 minutes of talking. Well, you've got to think, when I try and play a Pokemon game, when you're like, you should play this Pokemon game, I skip the talking. Yeah, there's a lot of talking. A lot. (laughs) What were your favourite bits about this, then? Um, The action was good, the animation was good, and the soundtrack was good. Yeah? You love the... uh... I don't know, do you call it J-pop, K-pop, C-pop, 
Depop. 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 I'm just picking out letters. Oh, um, um, I like all the pop. <laughs> it's very. Uh, it made me think of um, that band. Made me think of baby metal a lot. Yes. I might just. That might be a sweeping generalization of um, Japanese kind of poppy metal. I don't really know what you would actually call it, um, but that's what it sounded like to me. Yeah. Like you could have slotted any one of their songs into that, and it, I would have been like, "Ooh, baby metal." It would have worked in nice little faces. Yeah. Now there's a cat snoring on the desk. Would you watch it again? Uh, I probably would. I think I'll probably wait until I've watched the series because I yeah. think I'll appreciate it more. Yeah. And understand a bit more. I was surprised at how much I was able to understand having never watched it before. I got a brief rundown from both James and Matt as anime experts on what had happened. So I was like, okay, this guy's a demon slayer. His sister's a demon. His family's dead. And I think the last episode of the, the season on Netflix ends with them boarding the train. Oh, so there's like an overlap between the two, uh, but that's with that was the the sum total of my knowledge going in. That was a lot more than I had, and I came out of there referring to it as a sweeping epic, which is a quote which you can actually find on posters for this film, which is incredibly exciting. Soon to be framed on my office wall. You're looking around as if to say, "No, you're not." Well, you just painted it. <laughs> Anything else that you would like to say about this film? No, just have a wee look. See what you think. Even if you're not an anime fan, give it a go. And let us know what you think. And the usual social media channels. Well done for trying to make that bit up there. So Demon Slayer is available in cinemas now. I'm not sure if it's a limited run or a long run, but catch it while you can. And if you can catch it in IMAX, you you won't regret it. It's well worth the, the extra pounds. Okay, on to the final review for this podcast, which is the literally newly arrived, hot off the press, literally just finished watching it, episodes one and two of Marvel Studios' Loki. Premiering on Wednesday the 9th of June, the first episode, uh, well the whole series stars Tom Hiddleston as Loki, Owen Wilson as Mobius M. Mobius, Sophia Martino, Richard E. Grant, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Wanmi Masaku, Erica Coleman, Sasha Lane, and John Levine. I don't want to say too much about the casting because it will start to go into some quite spoilery territory. Uh, Although I can say that not everyone whose name I've just read out actually appeared in these first two episodes. The six-episode season will run every Wednesday. So first episode premieres on Wednesday, June the 9th. The second episode, which we've also seen today, will air one week later. I can't tell you what that is without looking at calendar, which will be the 16th of June. So we are going to go slightly ahead in terms of some of the story points that we discuss here. So I don't normally remember to say this, but please beware of spoilers. So Loki, what did you think of these two episodes that we weren't expecting to watch today? It was okay. Oh no! You weren't overly enticed by it? No. Okay, What? why? I don't know, I just, uh, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't really get it. Okay, in what way do you think you didn't really get it? I just felt a bit like, I don't know, the, the time police, the police time, mm-hmm. but they didn't police the Avengers. Which they explained was a moment in time that had to happen. Yeah, I just felt like, a, like oh well, that just had to happen. Please don't ask any more questions. But then, do you not feel that that's no different than when... in? So I feel like this, It's in some ways, is, is Marvel does Doctor Who. But do you not feel like 
it's the same as the Doctor explaining that he can't interfere with certain moments in history because they have to happen. Well, is that because it's a fixed point in time? Yeah. So the whole situation with Thanos, I think what they're saying is that had to happen. Like, that had to happen for Earth to understand that there are extraterrestrial threats which are huge in nature and that the the, the heroes of Earth needed to learn the lessons they learned through that story to to be able to be the heroes that they're supposed to be is, I guess, what they're saying in that moment. Or they're laughing it off in a kind of mischievous Loki style. Yeah, maybe. Felt a bit easy for me. Okay, fair enough. What did you like about what you saw? I'm not convinced at the minute. I think I'll need to see a couple more. There are only six of them, so you've seen one third of the series already. Oh, okay, well, it needs to warm up a bit more for me, I think. Okay. I loved it. <laughs> I do think... That there, there's a little bit of me that thinks, did this need to happen? Was there a need for more Loki? But I can understand why, because he's a massively popular character. I mean, people are there. You know, there's basically a cult of Loki out there. So that's, I'm not surprised that they've decided to do more. But I do wonder how much it was necessary. What we saw here, I think, I really appreciate the fact that this falls somewhere probably between One Division and Falcon. One Division I didn't feel like was overly maybe adventurous until its last episode when there was more action but it was very very original whereas Falcon and Winter Soldier I felt maybe wasn't as original because it felt very in keeping with say uh, Winter Soldier but had a great sense of adventure it was a big arc to the story and I feel like this falls somewhere in between it it's very original and very different but also has more of a story than I feel One Division had and there are some bigger stakes. It feels like sort of an Elseworlds, black label kind of side story that maybe won't have a huge impact elsewhere based on what we've just seen. But I'm I'm interested and I'm intrigued. Hmm. I really like the aesthetic. I love the set design. Really love the set design and the graphics and some of the, the aesthetic of the TVA in that world. I'm not quite sure where it will go in terms of a bigger arc. I don't feel like it's told us a huge amount yet. There is some major developments in episode two, which aren't hugely explained yet, which we'll guess we'll get more of in episode three, which are really interesting. I'm impressed that they've managed to make two episodes of a series back to back that run over 50 minutes. (laughs) There's not a Mandalorian style. This week it's 42 next week. It's 23. Um, which I realise sounds a bit bitchy, but I don't know why I am a stickler for consistency in terms of storytelling. I get it, maybe the approach is if we don't need 40 minutes, 45 minutes, then why use it and pad it out? But I just, I, I don't know, I like consistency in my TV episode one times. But yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm, I'm really in on this. I'm on the fence. <laughs> well, you're normally on the fence, so it's nothing different really, is it? What did you Okay, so what were your thoughts on the, the, the aesthetic and the set design? You know, I said partway through this is really 70s, and you were like, yeah! I presume that meant that you were liking that. No, I agreed. It was 70s, yeah. <laughs> but did you like it? It was okay. Um, it was a choice, I suppose. It's sort of this weird, out of time, out of place, doesn't quite know what it is. Is it 70s? Is it modern? Are we in the future? Are we not in the future? Oh no! It's really, it's really appealed to, um, Mister. It's all right. What's well, it? Was all right. I mean, 
Okay, so let's let's take this from a different angle. Uh, what more would you like to have seen from these that would have convinced you a bit more? I don't know. I mean, I've... that's always a good question when you when you're unsure of whether you like something or not. What what did you feel like you would have liked more of? Something to hook me in. I don't feel mm-hmm. hooked in. It just all feels unnecessary. Okay, so the the reveal which I won't give away from episode two. How do you feel about that? Is that is there a hook in there? Do you think, or is or do you feel like we're just telling a sort of multiversal story for the sake of telling a multiversal story? Yeah, because I mean, in episode one, they alluded to all the different variations, mm-hmm. so you could see that was coming a mile away. Yeah. So you're like, all right, you've done that. Whereas one division, I would never have guessed that twist. So that, because I felt the same about one division, the first couple of ones where we did yeah. that sitcom, I was like, I don't really like this. It's not going anywhere. And then you got the hook, and I was like, oh, actually, I quite like this. Okay. So I'm not there yet with Loki. I'm surprised at how colourful Loki isn't, if that makes sense. Like I feel that the TVA is very brown. 70s yeah and that's what i mean so i i i'm surprised that it's not bright and colorful i feel like loki is a very colorful character and i feel like this isn't a very colorful aesthetic for it which i'm surprised by but very pleasantly surprised by i really i really dig the fact that this is not a typical loki story and a typical loki setup i feel okay let's give an example so if you think back to ragnarok if you think about when Loki is in charge of Asgard, uh, pretending to be Odin, and he's got actors playing out his version of his story, and it's all very, it's all very campy, it's all very over the top, it's all very me, 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 very Loki, very egotistical. That's what this could have been like if Loki was telling the story, but he's not in control at this point in time that we are aware of. So, I mean, it could be this Loki's version of telling the story, uh, but it it doesn't feel like a typical Loki scenario. It's a very different Loki though, isn't it? Yes. He was plucked from a very specific point in time yes. in his life where yes. he was not a camp and colourful man. No, true. And there is also the fact that this version of Loki has to learn what happens to the version of himself that we've seen through further films up to where we see his death in Infinity War. Again, another surprise for me was the fact that there's quite an emotional component to this. He's not a character who I would think of as overtly emotional, apart from maybe when his his dad passed away in in Ragnarok. And yet, watching him learn the fate that he should have had if he hadn't jumped out of the time stream was was very surprising and emotional for me, I thought. Hmm. I'll give you that. Okay. So, you would you come back for more Given Choice? I might come back for one more. Okay. And then see where... I mean, it's only six, so I'll probably watch them all anyway. Um, But, yeah. Okay. Well, I am all in. We will have reviews for this on the website. Matt is handling this one for us, and he will have uh, reviews of episode one and two out as soon as the embargo lifts, which is probably around the same time that this podcast goes out. Uh, In the meantime, as we're recording this, we're not actually allowed to talk about it. As I said at the top of the segment, Loki debuts its first episode on Wednesday the 9th of June on Disney Plus and streams new episodes on Wednesdays for the next six weeks. That's it for this podcast. That is everything that we have to talk about this week. Turned out to be a lot more than I planned. I've talked a lot. I have a sore throat now. It's not like you at all. No, not at all. You're normally so quiet. 
Coming up in a couple of weeks' time for episode 57, we are going to be having a chat with Nick and Harry about a brand new Kickstarter. That's the guys from the world of Snow the Dawn, who we've talked to in the past, who uh, I have become good friends with. They're going to be telling us about their their new comic book, which is going to be a, a Kickstarter campaign that goes out quite soon. We've also got interviews coming up with uh, the writer and artist on DC Comics, Johnny Constantine. Yes, I'm going to be sitting down with author Ryan North and artist Derek Charm to talk about this really cool new book, which is available in stores on the 29th of June. The full title is The Mystery of the Meanest Teacher, a Johnny Constantine graphic novel. It's one of DC's wonderful uh, young adult books, uh, books for young readers. You're going you're gonna to love it. I've read it a couple of times already, and I can't wait to sit down and talk to them about that. We're also going to have Batman The Long Halloween Part 1 coming out in a couple of weeks' time, and we have a couple more press screenings. So this week, I will be seeing Universal Pictures' Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk from um, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And then one that you twisted my arm into, we are also going to a press screening of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, which is a brand new musical movie from Warner Brothers. That's going to take me into some brand new territory. I don't normally like musicals. Yeah, yeah, I'm not quite grumpy when it comes to musical. Yeah, but I quite like Lin-Manuel Miranda. I have to admit that I enjoyed Hamilton and this looks equally fun. So we're going to have that to chat about when we come back in a couple of weeks' time. So until then, stay safe, stay well. If you have anything that you want to get in touch with us about, you know where to find us on social media. If you don't, just rewind this podcast by like 40 minutes and I'll tell you. Bye. Bye.